Okay, good evening. So I had had my snow shovel out alongside my steps for the last couple weeks, and then we had that day that was like 70-something, and I said, you know, yesterday, I said, let me put that snow shovel away so it's my fault that it snowed today, because you know how that is, right? You put it away and you need it, so, but hopefully the weather tomorrow in the 50s will take care of all of that. But I want to thank you for coming out this evening, braving the elements, although they weren't too bad. Uh, to join us in worship. And this evening we have a little bit shorter study, or what I think is going to be a shorter study. Uh, But the gist of tonight is about not being a one-man show or a one-woman show. The art of delegation is one of those lessons that I teach in mentoring. In fact, I'm going to be teaching it tomorrow night. The art of delegation is very much a science of recognizing that no one should do everything but that everyone should do something. This understanding that the body of Christ is exactly that. It is a body. Unhealthy churches can be recognized by a number of different factors. But one of the ways you recognize an unhealthy church is you have one or two people doing everything. And that's either because they're they're not being moved by the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who can only move people to serve. Uh, only he can do that work. Or you have a couple of obstacles, that is, people who are unwilling to let go of control or their responsibilities. People who are unwilling to let someone else do what they could do because they might do it differently than they do. I've learned over 35 years that the Bible is very clear that we are, as leaders, called to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, not to do the work of the ministry. Of course, we do our part. But each of us are called to do our part. And if you are in a church or missions organization or even on a team or in a a job where people are working together as a team and people are utilizing their gifts and their talents together, working together on a project or or maybe at your job or or maybe at school, you're going to find out you get the best results. In the church, you have to be motivated and moved by the Holy Spirit. But we don't want to be those people that get in the way of God's work. In fact, we want to be those people that equip others to do the work. So before we get into our study this evening, let's pray that the Lord would speak to our hearts, not just about David and the issues concerning the temple, but the application tonight is really about how how can we change uh, and do things differently or do things in a way that's in concert. I like that word, concert with the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word, and we thank you for this study in advance. And as we go through your scripture this evening, may you show each and every one of us and those who are listening online uh, what it is you desire to speak to our hearts, what you have called us to do, and how you have called us to serve, and to serve others and to equip others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 23 of 1 Chronicles in verse 1. And admittedly, there are large portions of Scripture this evening that are nothing more than lists of names, much like the genealogies we had in the beginning of this book. And rather than butcher the names and bore you with the reading of names that in and of themselves don't matter much to us, we'll kind of skip through those things, but I'll summarize. Also, it's important to recognize why names were important at that time. Because there were families who were coming back to the land of Israel after having been in exile in Babylon and also in Persia. And Ezra, who we believe is the author of this book, First and Second Chronicles, uh, he was bringing back the people and he was restoring the priesthood and the Levites to their place and, and really working towards the restoration of the temple, which would ultimately come through the encouragement of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. The temple would ultimately be built during the time of Ezra and then later the walls around Jerusalem during the time of the governor Nehemiah. God is doing a revival. He's doing a restoration in Israel in the area of Jerusalem after at least 70 years, in some cases much longer. And the people need to be rebooted. You know, they need to be encouraged. They need to remember what it was like. And they needed to learn how things were done so that they could restore Jerusalem and the temple worship. So that's why so much detail. If you were to see your ancestor in a list of names, you would say, oh, That's why I'm a gatekeeper. That's why I'm a priest. That's why I am a guard. 
or, or an official. And so understand, to them this was extremely important, to us not so much, but the principles are wonderful. And we'll go through it quickly, but I think you'll see there are great applications this evening. Okay, so David, let's, let's read, uh, actually let's read verses uh, 1 through 6. In chapter 23, in verse 1, uh, in First Chronicles. When David was old and full of years, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. He also gathered together all the leaders of Israel, as well as the priests and Levites. The Levites, 30 years old or more, were counted, and the total number of men was 38,000. David said, of these 24,000 are, uh, are to supervise the work uh, of the temple of the Lord, and 6,000 are to be officials and judges. 4,000 are to be gatekeepers, and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I have provided for that purpose. So David divided the Levites into groups corresponding to the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Those are the branches of the descendants of Levi. And so the Levites were one of those three groups, and the priests were of one of those three groups. And so we're going to see that this evening. But David made his son Solomon king over Israel. This was toward the end of his life. This is actually the last year of his reign. So he brings Solomon in sort of like a, uh, what they call a co-regent. Happens a lot in Israel and in Judah. A co-regent is doing the job, but being overseen by the one who did the job. So David is still the king. He's the high king, but Solomon is also king because David's older and very soon he's going to pass on. And when he does, he wants his legacy to be that the kingdom is run like a well-oiled machine. Now, I know some of you, Jim, I know just retired, and he had to spend several years setting up his legacy at his job after many years to make sure that when he left, what he did was being done by others. I had a similar experience while I didn't retire. I left the job after 20 years, and I needed to pass the baton. How many of us really think about that in ministry? Many pastors are under the delusion that they're going to live forever and that they're just going to, you know, I guess die in the pulpit, you know, and then everything is going to be okay, even though they haven't made any preparations for what happens once they're gone. I have a 20-year plan (laughs) for what happens between now and my mid-70s in terms of this church, should the Lord tarry. And I really want to make sure that all of the needs are met and we've properly trained and delegated all of the people in ministry So that should something untimely happen to me or any one of our leaders, God forbid, uh, or the Lord, you know, should decide to do something different with one of our lives, that we can pass the ministry on to others and be responsible with what God has blessed us with. Amen? Very simple. So David, more than anything else, I mean, he's a warrior. He's a worship leader. He's a great administrator. Terrible father. (laughs) Not a, and, and a lustful man, but one thing we do know, he was a great administrator. And we're going to see that tonight. So David made his son Solomon king over all Israel toward the end of his life in the last year of his reign. Uh, he gathered together, as we see in verse 2, the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites, and he begins to make all of these changes, or at least put these things into place. He appointed the Levites to their leadership positions in verses 3 through 5. We see all of those numbers of uh, those working in the temple, those supervising officials, judges, gatekeepers, musicians, all of the individuals are in their place. Now, what if David had said, well, I'm a musician, I'll do the job. Oh, and I can guard the gate, and, uh, well, I can be an official and a judge, and I can be the king and the assistant king, and I can, you know. You see, the problem is in many ministries is men and women try to do too much, And then no one ever steps up to volunteer because they think, well, why? He or she does everything. So it's a mistake to not delegate to the body of Christ their responsibilities. And yes, it's true. You might be able to do a job better than someone else, but that doesn't mean you're called to do it. And in your mind, you think you can do a better job. But listen, God does the work through us. Amen? So David organized the Levites into three groups. We read about it in verse 6. I'm not going to read all of these uh, names, but in verses 7 through 11, you have the descendants of Gershon. In verses 12 through 20, you have the descendants of Kohath and the descendants of Merari in verses 21 through 23. So rather than read through all that, we'll jump forward and we'll pick it up in verse 24. Now, this is interesting. In verse 24, we learn that these were the descendants of Levi by their families, uh, the heads of families, as they were registered under their names and counted individually. That is, the workers 20 years old 
20 years old or more, who served in the temple of the Lord. For David had said, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has granted rest to his people and has come to dwell in Jerusalem forever, the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the articles used in its service. According to the last instructions of David, the Levites were counted from those 20 years old or more. Now, the duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants, that would be the priests, in the service of the temple of the Lord, to be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all sacred things, the performance of other duties at the house of God. They were in charge of the bread set out on the table, the flour for the grain offerings, unleavened wafers, and the baking and the mixing and all measurements of quantity and size. Uh, They were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. They were to do the same in the evening. And whenever burnt offerings were presented to the Lord on Sabbaths and at new moon festivals and appointed feasts, they were to serve before the Lord regularly in the proper number and in the way prescribed for them. And so the Levites carried out their responsibilities for the tent of meeting, for the holy place, and under their brothers, the descendants of Aaron, for the service of the temple of the Lord. You know what I like? I look at that, and those look like some pretty straightforward common jobs, right? Baking bread. Uh, Mike, you might want to notice this, the baking and the mixing, but notice the unleavened wafers. You know, I know that's uh, part of your responsibilities, operations director, and uh, so I thought I'd point that out. But anyway, so preparing the communion for us to receive on, a, on the first Sunday of the month. So that, that kind of stuff, those things, somebody's got to do that. You know that, right? Like, somebody has to be responsible for those things. Imagine if one of us was trying to lead worship, but before we came up to lead worship, we were in the back, you know, vacuuming the rug like Jim does so often, or, or, or preparing the communion elements like Mike and Jim do and others. So you, you don't want that. You want everyone working together and doing what God has called them to do. But you, as a leader, have to create an environment where people feel comfortable saying, ooh, can I help? where people feel empowered to volunteer and to serve. If they don't, if, if your culture of your organization or church or ministry is that someone volunteers to help and no one gets back to them, or they volunteer to help and you put them on a waiting list. I mean, many churches, I hate to say this, but many churches, someone volunteers, they say, well, we don't let you serve until you've been here six months or three months. And that's a policy. And I don't know what's going to happen in three to six months necessarily. There's always a place for someone to serve. Let's put it this way. The only rule we have is if you've been here six minutes, you can serve. Now, how about that? Or three minutes. No, we really want everyone to find a place to serve. Now, listen, if you've been here a month, you're not going to be in the pulpit. All right? I think we all know that. If you've been here a week, you're probably not going to be teaching Sunday school. But within a couple weeks or months, you may be an assistant to a Sunday school teacher. You may be at the back door greeting people. Uh, Those are positions we don't hold them with with such regard that, you know, well, you have to prove to us who you are before we allow you to serve. We just don't do that here at Calvary Chapel. And that's why so many people volunteer and are involved. You, as a leader, we have to create a culture where people pitch in, where the Holy Spirit leads them, and they say, you know, I'd like to stand at the front door and greet people and hand them a bulletin and ask them how they're doing. I'm a people person. I would like to do that. You know what? I love babies. I'd love to be in the nursery once a month on a Sunday. See, if you don't create that environment, it doesn't happen. And then you're running around badgering people to serve, and then four people need to do the work of 400. You know what I mean? It's not good. It's not good. David understood that, and what David does here is so wonderful. He creates an environment where people are serving in their gifts. Okay? So, What we saw here is, I like this, really, because it communicated the responsibilities of the Levites. Now, if you're thinking, well, what about the other tribes? Well, we'll get to some of those, but understand, Ezra's a Levite. Ezra's a priest. Ezra is speaking to the priests. This is being written down to encourage the priests. He's trying to restore temple worship. So all of this is about what David did, and Ezra's recording it and and presenting it to the Levites because he wants to restore temple worship, okay? So they're David's words, Ezra's recorded them and presenting them many years later. Okay, so David, like around a thousand years before Christ, this is taking place in like the 400 years before Christ, or 450, 470 years before Christ. So this is definitely a a very important understanding to why this is being not only recorded, but written and presented the way it's being presented. Now the Levite's 20 years old, and older served in the temple. Of course, they no longer needed to carry the tabernacle. 
That's what they did with the tabernacle. It was a portable temple. Uh, they didn't need to do that anymore. You know, so that's a good thing, right? Uh, and then they could now take on different responsibilities. So when and if the day should come where we have our own facility, uh, the operations guys are no longer going to need to move all this stuff. So what are they going to do? Resign, go home, and stop serving? No, they'll find something else to do. God will lead them to do some other work in the ministry. And so that's the mentality. Uh, Anyway, the Levites were to help Aaron's descendants, the priests, as they served in the temple. They had many responsibilities within the temple courts, as we've seen. I like that they praised the Lord in the morning and in the evening and on special occasions. And by the way, that's just a good practice. Praise the Lord in the morning, praise the Lord in the evening, and on special occasions. But really, praise the Lord at all times. Uh, They served at the tent of meeting and at the holy place, uh, and that's what was outlined for them, as we saw in verse 32. Okay, because it says there, uh, they carried out the responsibilities of the tent of meeting for the holy place, and under their brothers, the descendants of Aaron, for the service of the temple of the Lord. So everything's put in place. And then we read in the next chapter, in chapter 24, we see David organized Aaron's descendants, the priests. Now we're talked about the Levites, let's talk about the priests. There's a number of them, and he organizes them into 24 divisions. 24 divisions. So if you were going to serve once a year, you would serve, let's say, for two weeks. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea, okay? And that's another very important principle I need to talk about. In ministry, the worst thing you can do in some churches is volunteer for the nursery because you'll never leave. It's like you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. The idea is you become a nursery worker, and then you're, you're never back in church again. I've seen it. I've heard it. And then what happens? People don't complain. They just leave the church because they don't feel like they can— they don't feel empowered to stand up and say, you know, I don't mind serving once a month, but, you know, four or five weeks a month is killing me. I need to be back in the service. I love babies, but not that much. I want to be in the presence of the Lord, too. And so a very, very important principle, in addition to delegation, is rotation. You've got to put people on a schedule uh, where they're on once a month. Now, we have, uh, you know, a fifth week every once in a while on our schedules. So what Raj came up with, I guess it was Raj and Jana came up with this idea, or maybe it was just Raj, but he'll give the credit to Jana anyway. Uh, but they talked about it with me. They said, well, listen, we've got those four weeks a year that are the fifth, fifth week, either fifth Wednesday or a fifth uh, Sunday. Why don't we have one of the four teams just do an extra week once a year? So one month out of the year, that team will serve twice that month. And that's only once. It happens once a year. So it seemed good. It seemed like a good idea. We've implemented that. But the idea is that people should only really be serving, let's say, in, their, in the ministry they're called to once a month unless they feel called to do more. We have a couple people who are leaders who prefer to serve a little bit more frequently, maybe twice a month, uh, maybe three or four times a month. And, and now, let me say this. If you're in the service and you're doing a, a service to the Lord, but you're here in the service, it's not as important that you Uh, only serve once a month. Whereas if you're next door and out of the service, maybe with the children or doing hallway security, in that case, I think it's kind of important that it be, you know, once a month, maybe occasionally an extra Sunday, but once a month. So that's a very important principle. I know these are logistics. For those of you who like logistics, this is great. For those of you who don't, it might seem a little boring. But let me tell you, delegation is extremely important. Rotating your resources, not burning people out is extremely important as well. So David had a plan for that, okay? Because the priests are doing their work. And we read, uh, let's see, we're going to read maybe uh, one through six here. And we're in uh, chapter 24 now. These were the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadad, Bihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadad and Abihu died before their father did, and they had no sons. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests, with the help of Zadok, a descendant of Eleazar, and Ahimelech, a descendant of Ithamar, David separated them into divisions for their appointed order of ministering. A larger number of teachers were found among Eleazar's descendants than those of Ithamar's, and they were divided accordingly. Sixteen heads of families from Eleazar's descendants, and eight heads of families from Ithamar's descendants. By the way, Ithamar's descendants were wiped out under Saul. He massacred the priests at Nob. So that would explain why there was so, there was like a half the number of priests uh, in Ithamar's uh, descendants. Uh, that was Saul. Saul did that. 
But anyway, they divided uh, them impartially by drawing lots, and for there were officials of the sanctuary and officials of God among the descendants of both Eliezer and Ithamar. And the scribe Shemaiah, son of Nathaniel, uh, a Levite, recorded their names in the presence of the king and the officials, Zadok the priest, the Himelech son of Abiathar, and the heads of families of the priests and of the Levites, one family being taken from Eleazar and then from Ithamar. So just, they, they just set up a rotation. I mean, that's kind of simple, right? But this rotation was a wonderful idea. Aaron's descendants were divided into two groups. And they were the descendants of each of these surviving sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was the brother of Moses. Now, Nadad and Abihu were the first sons, the oldest sons of Aaron. They died without sons. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. They offered strange fire before the Lord. That is, they were bringing attention to themselves as they were ministering before the Lord. I mean, that never happens, right? They were bringing attention to themselves. These might be called celebrity ministers. They were bringing attention to themselves. They were, they were offering strange fire. They were getting in on the work of God. They were looking for attention. And they were struck dead by God when fire from the Lord came down and consumed them. If that were to happen today, many, many churches would be gone because there are far too many ministers who are bringing attention to themselves. I mean, we're all capable of it, myself included. We have to guard our hearts because fame and celebrity are not what we're called to. We're called to humbly serve, like Jesus, right? Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet many, many ministers, and I won't be too critical here, think that they're here to write books and make movies and bring attention to themselves and have their podcasts and radio shows to the extent that they're not necessarily promoting the gospel, which is fine if you do those things with that heart, but they're doing those things to promote themselves, And we see it all the time. And quite frankly, it's disgusting to me. So I don't want to be a part of that. And I don't want to be a Nadad and a Baihu. And I I don't want fire to come down from heaven. So let's give the glory to God, as we've talked about even recently here. I believe it was on the Sunday morning recently. Amen? Okay, so Nadad and a the sons of Aaron, they died. And so all of the priests were descended from these two sons. And as I've said, the descendants of Ithamar were wiped out uh, by Saul several years earlier, uh, earlier than David. So Aaron's descendants were further divided into 24 divisions, and you have them listed there in verses uh, 7 through 18, which we have not read. I'm not going to read all those names, but I do want to point out a couple of quick things. Uh, Zadok was a descendant of of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. Ahimelech, a descendant of Ithamar, son of Aaron. There were 16 family leaders from Eliezer, 8 from Ithamar, and they were divided impartially into 24 divisions by drawing lots which means that every priest was on duty for two weeks a year. Are you with me? Or roughly two weeks, half a month. Okay? Now, this is important because there was a man by the name of Zechariah in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1 in verse 5. You'll remember, he was the father of John the Baptist. He was serving in the course, the 8th division of Abijah. We're told that in Luke's Gospel. And if you look here, the 8th course is Abijah. So what happened is that Zechariah, the priest, was serving as priest during his rotation in Jerusalem when he received that prophecy from the angel about his son, John the Baptist, being born. But you know, that, that's why Zechariah was serving as priest, because he was part of the, the course of priests. Now it's interesting because at that point, the priests in the temples were, 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 were run by the Sadducees. They bought their positions from the Romans. However, they still recognized, according to God's word, that there were these priests, according to their courses, who were responsible to serve at that time. And apparently Zechariah was the oldest, and he actually went in to make, I think it was a morning sacrifice. It might have been an evening sacrifice. I can't remember. But basically it was one of the sacrifices, and it was at that time that he saw the angel of the Lord in the holy place, and he received that prophecy that John the Baptist, his son John, would be born. And remember, he doubted it, and then he, didn't, he couldn't speak until the baby was born. You can read about that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. So that's why this is important, because it explains what was happening in Luke's Gospel. Okay, so the priest served in the temple according to the law of the Lord. And then we get to uh, chapter, or chapter 24, verse 20. 
And uh, in, in verse 19 there, actually I want to read verse 19. This was their appointed order in chapter 24. This was their appointed order of ministering when they entered the temple of the Lord according to the regulations prescribed for them by their forefather Aaron as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded him. So that's how they're to do things. And then you get to verses 20, and I'm not going to read again, not going to read all these names, all the way through 30, and you actually have David organizing the remainder of the Levites. So any Levite that at this point, or family of Levites that didn't have a job, was given one. They were, they were supposed to serve full-time in ministry, and so he gave them jobs. First in verses 20 through 25, the descendants of Koath that were not Aaron's descendants, because there were descendants of Koath that were, that were not descended from Aaron. They needed to be given jobs, and so we read about that in verses 20 through 25. And then when you get to verse 26 through 30, it's interesting, the descendants of Merari are mentioned, and that's actually repeated uh, because in, in, in verses 26 through 30, we've already had that listed. So for whatever reason, it's repeated. Uh, it was, excuse me, it was recorded for us and uh, is recorded again. Uh, so then we have, let's see, we have uh, the fact that they were divided impartially by casting lots is important. So look at verse 31. It says, they also cast lots, just as their brothers, the descendants of Aaron, did in the presence of King David and of Zadok, Ahimelech, and the heads of families of the priests of the Levites, the families of the oldest brother were treated the same as those of the youngest. Now, there's another principle, and that is impartiality. They used a random way of doing things. In other words, they cast lots. They did something random to determine the order of things so that no one was given preferential treatment. See, politics thrives on that exact thing. And you can have politics in the church when a few people are making all the decisions and giving the best jobs to their friends. Uh, if it's given to their friends or their family, we call that nepotism. Uh, and the reason they used a random determination was so that no one felt that they were being showed favor or they were being uh, cast to the side or discriminated against. It is very important in church ministry, in any ministry, not so much that you do it randomly, but that you do it impartially, okay? When you're putting people in positions, you can't let the fact, oh, he's my friend, I like him or her, I'm going to give them this job because I like them. God is not a respecter of persons. We need to be as impartial as we can be. Of course, if there are people who have certain gifts, great. But I've seen worship teams where the only way that one worship leader gets an opportunity to lead a service is if you know, the first worship leader is on vacation or sick. And I just don't like that. I don't, I don't think that's pleasing to the Lord. There are certainly worship leaders with more experience. There are certainly pastors with more experience. But we're all to be serving God. Amen? It's not just based on your age or experience. Each of us need to be given an opportunity. When I was a, a praise and worship leader in New York City, I had a number of different worship leaders, and I rotated them. And there were times where we might have a guest speaker, and some people suggested that maybe I lead worship instead of my worship leader because we have this special guest coming in. And I want you to know, I defied that order. I would not do that because I don't want to be a respecter of persons. And after all, who cares who's coming to speak? Can you imagine? How would you feel? Just think about this. How would you feel if you were a worship leader and let's say a, a very well-known speaker was coming that Sunday, and someone called you up and said, hey, listen, because we have a well-known speaker, uh, you're out. We're putting somebody else in. Oh, sure, that feels good, doesn't it? There's no one that would receive that well. I'm sorry. There's no one that would receive that well. So what I would do is I'd say, no, no, no. If it's week B, the leader for week B, as long as they're healthy and they're not on vacation, is going to serve. And, uh, you know, I stood up to some people about that because of these issues. So that's an important principle as well. We've talked about delegation. We've talked about rotation. And here now we're talking about not showing partiality. Okay, so I'm, I'm highlighting all these little leadership things because they're really important principles. And you need to apply them to your life and in your ministry. Okay, so uh, back to where we are. Uh, we looked at verse 31. And now we find ourselves in chapter 25. And we're going through these things quickly, but there's some great principles here. Okay, so in chapter 25 now, David organized some of the Levites, the temple musicians, 
and, and those others that he mentions here into 24 divisions. So again, we're doing that rotation again, right? Uh, look at verse, uh, let's look at verses 1 in, in chapter 25. Let's just look at verse 1. I think that's enough to look at. Um, it says, David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Haman, and Jedithan for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. Here is the list of the men who performed this service. And then we have all of these lists that, again, I'm not going to read, uh, going through verse 5. But then we're told all these men were under the supervision of their fathers for the music of the temple of the Lord, with cymbals, lyres, and harps for the ministry at the house of God. Asaph, Jedithan, and Heman were under the supervision of the king. And along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord. They numbered 288, young and old alike, teacher as well as student, cast lots for their duties. So I like that, teachers and students. Everybody's serving, young and old, experienced and inexperienced. Let me ask you a question. If you're inexperienced, just how do you get experience? Don't you love that? You, 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 maybe you're at a job and you're looking for a promotion and you go in for the interview. And they say, well, what experience do you have? You feel like saying, none, bozo. That's why I want the job, so I can get the experience. In the church, we should be giving everyone experience, not telling them, well, you really don't have any experience. You tell somebody you don't have any experience, that's it. It's a dead end for them. You got to give people the opportunity to gain experience, right? You got to invest in others. You can't expect people to serve and then be treated like, I was going to say like garbage, but treated rotten and and and. and treated insignificantly, if you do that, you're, you're, you're going to lose those people as servants. They're, they're going to be discouraged. And after all, wait a minute, that's not who we're called to be. So another great lesson there. But David organized these Levites. They were organized. Notice, David didn't do all of this himself. He did this with the assistance of the commanders of the army. They were good at organizing things. So he goes to the commanders of the army, enlists their help, and they come up with a way to do this that gets everyone involved. Now, they were divided into three groups. Uh, and you can read about this again in verses 2 through 5. We've already read the other verses. Uh, the descendants of Asaph, Jedithan, and Haman. These were the three divisions of musicians. Uh, they, they were descended. These were the descendants of these three men that David recognized. They were called, notice this. Now, this is very important for those of you who may be worship leaders or involved in the worship team. This is very important. Because we don't just play songs, okay? We're not like some band that just shows up and plays a couple snappy tunes and then we get to the Word. So many churches are like a little performance and then we get started with what, what's supposed to be called uh, you know, time of worship. If it's entertainment, it's not worship. Can I be so bold? Can I hear an amen? If it's entertainment, it's not worship. Worship and entertainment are two different things. And this is coming from someone, I'm a musician, okay? I actually do gigs. I actually am an entertainer. I like actually go out, learn songs, play them for people to applaud, okay? I've been doing that my whole life, almost my whole life, since I was in my teens. So I know the difference between one and the other. And there is a difference, a huge difference. Entertainment has no place in the house of the Lord. And so what we see here is these were the responsibilities. And again, I'm not going to read through all of it, but I'll summarize it for you in verses 2 through 5. They were called to prophesy to the musical accompaniment. That means that as the music was being shared, they were supposed to be speaking the word of the Lord. Maybe through the songs. Maybe in introductions to the songs maybe at the end or the close of a song and in prayer. See, worship is not just playing songs. It's prophesying. What does prophesying mean? It's not predicting the future alone. It's speaking the word of God. So worship leaders, you are responsible to speak the word of God and to sing the word of God. And it's why every one of our worship songs need to be deduced, at least, from the word of God, if not the very words of God. Amen? We're very careful about the songs we sing here. For that reason, for the worship we uh, share. Now, they were under the supervision of their fathers who were in charge of the temple musicians. And supervision's important. That, by the way, when you get experience, you need someone to supervise you and help you along the way. That's a good thing. Uh, Asaph prophesied under the king's supervision. Jedithan prophesied using the harp 
in thanking and praising the Lord, we're told. And Haman was the king's seer. So that means that Haman had that job of sort of prophesying in the sense that he was sort of speaking the future. So think about this. These are the worship leaders. They're prophesying to music and even predicting the future as the Lord speaks through them. So being a worship leader should not go to the best musicians necessarily. It should go to those who are called to lead worship. I have worked with some musicians that are fantastic and have no business being involved in the worship team because they don't understand worship. They're wonderful people. They're good people. They're great musicians. But they're not ready to be in a situation where they're prophesying the word of the Lord. Are you with me? Okay, that's a very important thing. It's important to me. Asap, Jedithan, and Haman were under the supervision of the king. So the king directly supervised this because these were important positions. And, and I don't want to rank position in the church, but if you're in the pulpit, that's kind of an important position. But if you're in worship, you're also in a similar position. You're in a pulpit position. So obviously, it takes time to grow into that position. And we don't just bring people in off the street and say, oh, you've been here five minutes. Why don't you leave the worship service? And that's important, of course, to have the maturity and understanding of your calling in that particular ministry. Okay, there were 288 temple musicians. There were 24 family leaders uh, from the temple musicians. And they were divided impartially, again, impartially, into groups of 12 by casting lots. And in fact, uh, it says so, and uh, we've already read so in verses 7 and 8. But I'm not going to read all of the lots and all of the lists. So you can jump down now to chapter 26. And now we're going to talk about the gatekeepers. And you might be thinking, oh, that's a lousy job. Who wants to be the gatekeeper? Well, think about it this way. The greeters in our church, right? Excuse me, let me. I should have took that sip of water a long time ago. Anyway, gatekeepers. The thing about gatekeepers is they're the ones that let people in. And don't think about it as security. You know, you want to go to some hot club and there's this guy out there with like tree trunk arms. Who are you? You know, who do you know to let you in? No. Your first contact when you walk into church will almost certainly be the person in the parking lot, the person at the door, the person in the lobby who greets you, welcomes you, and hands you perhaps a bulletin, asks you how you're doing, maybe asks your name, asks if there's any way they can serve you. It's a position of service. It's a very, very important position of service. In fact, let me say this about gatekeepers. Would you want to walk into a church if the guy or woman at the door was like had a scowl on their face and weren't very inviting and didn't welcome you in? You'd be like, ah. You know, the whole point of being a gatekeeper at the church, if you will, uh, a greeter or an usher, is that you literally are welcoming somebody in, perhaps for the first time. And you can make all the difference in the world in their hearts being open to the worship and to the word. I'm telling you, it's an important position. So as we look at the gatekeepers, uh, we are now, uh, let's see, we are now, we're, we're going to go through this quickly, but um, in chapter 26, I just want to look at the first part of verse 1, where it says the divisions of the gatekeepers. And then it goes on and lists all of them. And then you get down to verse 12, and it says, these divisions of the gatekeepers through their chief men, had duties for ministering in the temple of the Lord, just as their relatives had. Remember, Ezra is sharing these ancient lists from hundreds of years earlier with the people who have returned to Jerusalem. So that's why he mentions the families. They would have recognized the family names. So as we see them all listed there, I'll summarize for you. These were the descendants of Korah and Merari who ministered in the temple of the Lord. As gatekeepers, there were 62 servant leaders from the descendants of Obed-Edom, 18 servant leaders from the descendants of Meshelamiah, and 13 servant leaders from the descendants of Hosea. So they're all listed there for us. They were divided impartially by casting lots. Again, very important principle, impartiality. But look at it says in verse 13. Now, some of this is kind of uh, technical, but... It says, lots were cast for each gate according to their families, young and old alike. 
The lot for the east gate fell to Shemaliah. Then the lots were cast for his son, Zechariah, a wise counselor. And the lot for the north gate fell to him. And the lot for the south gate fell to Obed-Edom. And the lot for the storehouse fell to his sons. And the lots for the west gate and the Shalaketh gate on the upper road fell to Shupim and Hosa. And the guard was uh, alongside of guard. And there were six Levites, a day on the east, four a day on the north, four a day on the south, two at a time at the storehouse. As for the court to the west, there were four at the road and two at the court itself. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers who were the descendants of Korah and Merari. Now, in their case, gatekeepers did sort of do security as well. Now, I know there were a couple of years ago now where we had a rash of like church shootings and problems in, in churches. And a lot, of, a lot of churches became very concerned, and, and we were one of them. And so we started to do things a little differently. Like, we, we only had one entrance into the church. You can get out of every door, but only come through one. So we could funnel people through so that we could see if anyone suspicious or problematic was there, uh, posting people at the doors in case there was an intervention that needed to be you know, made. We actually do think about these things. We keep the doors locked so the kids are safe. Yes, they can go through the door if there's an emergency, but no one can get in. These things are important. So yes, gatekeepers, security, we think about those things. We actually have the person who checks in the kids in the back go next door after the service starts where they listen to the message on a speaker so that they can be in the hallway even offering a second level of security. So you may not realize these things. That's why I'm pointing them out. You may just think, oh, well, you know, nothing, you know, nothing to worry about. No, we actually do try to be really diligent about those things. But listen, at the end of the day, we trust the Lord. If somebody comes in with a cannon and blows the doors off the back and, and, and storms in here, there's really not much we can do. We trust God. doesn't mean we don't put the right people in the right place. Amen? So I just point that out. So you have all the gates mentioned and where all the guards were, and I've already read it, so we don't need to go into it. Uh, then we get down to verse 20, where I believe we left off, where we see that David organized some of the Levites as treasurers of the temple. Now, you may or may not know this, but our church has a board of trustees. I serve as the president of that board, but there are four trustees. They're the ones that are responsible, those four individuals, for counting the offerings, depositing the monies, watching over the finances, approving the budgets and the expenditures. We actually have four people. That that is their role here. And by the way, none of those four people are ministry leaders. This is their ministry. So that way, when the ministry leaders want to spend money, they make the proposal through me. And then I bring the proposal to the board, and I don't approve it. I just present it, and they approve the budget. So when we wanted to uh, renovate our bathrooms this last year, we put together the proposal, presented it to the board, they approved it, and then we were able to make the expenditure. That's called accountability. And that gets to another principle in ministry. There needs to be accountability. If one person is writing all the checks and spending the money, and not telling everyone where it's going, that's a problem. And many churches are loath to show you their financial statements. You know this because a couple of weeks ago I said, would you like a financial statement? They're right here. And if you haven't gotten one and you'd like one, see me, I'll print, out a, I'll print one out for you. It's a three-page uh, financial statement, and it shows you where every, to the penny where every dollar goes. That's important. It's accountability. So he had treasurers. And uh, it says in verse 20, And uh, let's see where we are now. We're in chapter 26. Their fellow Levites were in charge of the treasuries and of the house of God and the treasuries for the dedicated things, that is, the donations. And then it goes on in verses 21 all the way through to the end of the chapter, giving us all of the names of those individuals who were responsible for those things. Uh, And you have those who were in charge of the temple treasuries in verses 20 through 22. You have those that were uh, officials uh, in charge of the treasury, those who were in charge of the dedicated things. One of the things that's mentioned in verses 25 through 28 is that David and the army officers of various ranks dedicated their plunder to the Lord. So when they conquered a city, they took the plunder and they dedicated it to the Lord. They donated it. It's important to know that. That shows you the heart of these men. They used these resources for the maintenance of the temple, And specifically in these verses, Samuel, Saul, Abner, and Joab are mentioned because they dedicated their plunder to the Lord as well. So that's worth mentioning. Uh, We have those in verse 29 who were judges and officials over Israel. We have those in verse 30 who oversaw all of Israel west of the Jordan. So you had sort of supervisors overseeing or government officials. And then you have those, there there were 1,700 men 
who oversaw Israel west of the Jordan. And then you have those 2,700 men who oversaw all of Israel east of the Jordan. Now, I summarize that for you because it's a lot of information. That's the gist of those verses. You can read them if you like. Uh, also, we have the army in verses 20, uh, chapter 27, verses 1 through 15. You have the army mentioned, and I just want to read verse 1. This is the list of the Israelites, heads of families, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and their officers, who served the king and all that concerned the army divisions that were on duty month by month throughout the year. Each division consisted of 24,000 men. Again, you have this very organized rotation of reserves that served a certain amount of time each year. And we'll see what it says there in just a minute. Uh, but that's, I can just summarize verses 2 through 15, which list all of the different divisions, and tell you that in those verses, each division consisted of 24,000 men. They were on duty month by month. Uh, the army was led by officers at various ranks, heads of families, commanders of thousands, hundreds, and their officers and their officials. Uh, they were divided into 12 divisions of 24,000 men, each with a division commander. Uh, Rajal recognized this because this is, this is basic military organization. Uh, but each of the division commanders were among David's mighty men. Remember, we talked about that in First Chronicles chapter 11. So all of the commanders were David's mighty men. So to be at that level, you had to be uh, a mighty man, so to speak. Some of them had sub-commanders as well, and they're mentioned in verses 4, 6, and 7. Uh, but there's the army. Then you have David recognizing the leadership over the tribes of Israel. You know, in our country today, we have leadership at a federal level and at a state level, right? And it's kind of a checks and balances, and it works out really well. Israel had leadership at the national level, but they also had leadership at the tribal level. But there were 12 tribes, and in addition to Levi, and they, they, they were all organized with leaders. And so uh, look at verses, uh, actually, I'm only going to, I really don't need to read it. The officers of the tribes are mentioned from verse 16. All the names are listed right on down through verse 22. And then it goes on in verse 23. David did not take the number of the men 20 years old or less, because the Lord had promised to make Israel as numerous as the stars in the sky. So they left the younger men, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't uh, get them involved in this, uh, in, in the uh, different, especially in the army. They, they were careful about some of the younger men because they had families. Uh, but anyway, it says, uh, Joab, son of Zariah, began to count the men, but did not finish. Wrath came on Israel on account of his numbering and the number of uh, was not entered into the book of the annals of King David. We talked about that last week. So they were careful about who they chose to be in the army, but these leaders of the tribes of Israel are mentioned here. And by the way, the leaders of Gad and Asher are not included in this list. They're, they're, they're missing. Maybe the records were destroyed. Uh, but David didn't include men 20 years old or less because he trusted in the Lord's promise. And the Lord's promise was God would work through those men, those young men. They would have families, and they would increase. So think about that for a minute. They, those younger men, they typically had families at a very young age. They wanted them to have families. They didn't want them to go out and before they had a chance to have families be killed. And it's interesting because we have kind of a different approach, don't we, in our military today. We kind of think, oh, well, let's send the young men out. They don't have families. But they were, they were actually the other way around, if you will. So it's just an interesting observation. Uh, Joab never completed that census that we talked about last week because it brought judgment on Israel, as we saw. And finally, and thank you for your patience with all of these lists and many, many verses, uh, but finally we get to verses 25 through, 20, uh, through 34, and uh, I actually do want to read some of this. I'm going to summarize a little bit and read through some of it, but in this section, David appointed various leadership positions over his property and over the army. Now, I want to look at what some of these positions were because sometimes in the church, we think our job is insignificant. Our calling doesn't matter. That what we're doing doesn't make any difference at all. And yet, I'm going to tell you something. After 35 years of church leadership, I'm going to tell you those lesser, quote-unquote, lesser jobs that you think are unimportant are extremely important. Like, for example, back to communion for a minute. Imagine if on Communion Sunday we were ready to receive communion, and I look over at the table... 
and there's no elements prepared. Guess we're not receiving communion, right? Or what if we come here to worship and we look around and there's no cables running, there's no, nothing's ready to go. Guess we're not having a worship service, right? Or what if the kids go back to the nursery and the, and the Sunday school and none of the teachers are there and the rooms aren't set up and there's no curriculum and no program for them? Oh, I guess we're not having Sunday school. You see, some of those jobs that seem insignificant are extremely significant. They're not insignificant. So here's what we learn. There were officials in charge of the king's property. There were counselors to the king. And, of course, at the end, Joab is mentioned as the commander of the royal army. But as I look at this list and go over it quickly, uh, in verse 25, there was an individual in charge of the royal storehouses. You might call that the quartermaster. Uh, There was a man who was in charge of the storehouses in the outlying districts and in the villages and the watchtowers. There was a man in charge of the field workers who farmed the land. There was a man in charge of the vineyards. There was a man in charge of the, the produce of the vineyards from the wine vats. I like this. There was someone in charge of the olive and sycamore fig trees in the western foothills. Uh, there was a man in charge of the supplies of olive oil. I would have loved that job. Love olive oil, right? There was a man in charge of the herds grazing in Sharon. There, there was a man in charge of the herds in the valleys. There was a man in charge of the camels. There was a man in charge of the donkeys. There was a man in charge of the flocks. And all of these officials in charge were in charge of David's property. So very important jobs. And yet you might say, I wouldn't want any of those jobs. Well, you go where the Lord has called you to go. And you do what God has called you to do. Amen? We then learn in verse 32 that Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, a man of insight and a scribe. Jehiel, was, uh, son of Harkomi, took care of the king's sons. So he was like the teacher who taught the, the uh, young men, the princes. Then you have Ahithophel. Oscar was talking about this man in our men's prayer breakfast just a few weeks ago. Ahithophel was the king's counselor. Hushai the archite was the king's friend. And uh, he was also another counselor. And Ahithophel was succeeded by Jehoiada, son of Benaniah, and by Abiathar. So when Ahithophel actually took his own life after the rebellion of Absalom, these men replaced him. And finally, we learn Joab was the commander of the royal army. Okay, that was a lot of information, a lot of stuff. You can forget all the details, if you like. But don't forget the principles. Don't forget the principles of delegation. Don't forget impartiality, accountability. Don't forget the fact that everyone's important, that you want to develop an environment where people feel empowered and want to volunteer, right? Don't forget those things. Those are really, really important principles. All of the different principles, those are just a few I mentioned tonight, all of the principles we talked about, these issues, these, these guidelines for service, let's call it that, guidelines for service in the church, well, it was true for Israel, it's true for us today. These principles are valuable to us. May we always implement them, and may everyone feel appreciated and valued and be given the opportunity to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we are grateful that we can find wonderful lessons, even in lists of names and job, and job descriptions. Lord, thank you for these chapters, these verses. May some of what we've learned tonight stay with us. May all of it minister to us in some way, shape, or form. And may we continue to live for you, to serve you, and may this church continue to grow according to your leading and your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.